Our reading from God's Holy Word is taken from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John Wesley did not like the chapter and verse divisions that you find in your Bible. He would occasionally make the joke that the way that the verses were put in was that an itinerant monk who would travel from town to town would do the labor while he was riding, but the, the mule upon which he rode had a gimp leg. So every time the mule kind of stumbled, he put in another verse reference. It was a joke, but the point was there are places where the chapter and the verse reference breakdown doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Why did you put a chapter here? Why did you put a verse reference there? Uh, occasionally seems kind of arbitrary. And actually, you didn't have verse division until you had the Geneva Bible in the Reformation. And chapters, which are older than that, that was only around 400 AD. So uh, both of those things are man-made. And they can be useful for memorization. They can be useful for finding things in the text. And actually, that's the big reason but sometimes they can be a little obscurative. The chapter break or the verse break can kind of separate your thinking when the original writer didn't intend your thinking be derailed. No one writes a letter in chapter and verse. I mean, if you've ever sent a letter to somebody, you don't do that. And the original text doesn't do that. And in this particular place in the text, we are slightly disserviced by the chapter division because what we have just read begins functionally with the word likewise. In the original, it is the first word of the verse. Uh, the term likewise means what? Well, it means that what is about to follow is similar to and is impinged upon by what has come before, and what we're going to read here has a similar nature to what we've already read. But what we already read was in chapter 2. And so beginning our chapter at this point seems a little odd. It's a flow of, of thought that has already begun. And the word likewise is here twice. It is here in verse 1, and it is also here in verse 7. Um, it calls us back to the path we've already been traveling. This section of Peter's first letter uh, kind of shifted gear in chapter 2 in verse 11 and 12. There we read, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, 
glorify God in the day of invitation. So Peter, at that point, brings us into what is an honorable life? What is a life that glorifies God? What is a life that has a certain evangelistic quality to it so that those who are outside of the kingdom can see what life in the kingdom is like? That's what we've been talking about. We've been going through categories of life and we've been looking at what is the good life? What is the life that God would honor? What is the life that God would hold up and say, this is a well-lived human life. It's what I want. And then in verse 18, there was added to what we are looking at, a very overt focus on Jesus the Christ and on what happened to him the night he was betrayed. In verse 18, Peter turned to slaves, and he said to slaves, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. And then to uh, throw light upon that commandment, that part of the good life, he introduced us to Christ who unjustly suffered that we might receive the blessings that he did justly deserve. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. So that idea is introduced and we read, For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered, did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And then the next words are, wives, likewise. And when we get to verse 7, it is husbands, likewise. So we are still focusing on those two very significant ideas. What is a good life that God would commend, that God would say this is an honorable life, and specifically a life that incorporates living like the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself that we might receive, gave himself to the hands of men who treated him unjustly that we might receive, wives like wives, husbands like wives. So, here we are. Feminists would expect that because I am a conservative Christian, the way I will approach this text is that I will gather up its first six verses, and I will hammer them home, and I will forget the seventh verse, because as a conservative Christian pastor, my goal is to enslave you and keep you in your place, women, and I don't really like you, and uh, I, want to, I want to really keep you down, and I'm not going to preach about the seventh verse, because that's about men. And it turns out I am one, and I want to retain my power, so I'm going to really put you in your place, and that's how I'm going to preach this. What conservative Christian preachers usually do with this passage, so far from what feminists expect of us, is we read this passage, and then we do nothing in our sermon but preach verse 7, which is to the husband. We spend our entire sermon directed at him because, quite frankly, we can do it in this political environment. It is the third rail to preach 
wives submit to your husbands. This is not the only passage that says that. And it's certainly not considered very politically safe to preach this passage. Because there is more to this wives submit to your husbands than merely that. It is likewise wives submit to your husbands. And the train has been traveling through, uh, by the way, God calls you to suffer unjustly. So without doubt, the suffering that we are looking at here is not from a good or kind husband. And in fact, the text makes a distinction. Uh, Generally focused, this text is on if your husband's a jerk. And so to preach that is very dangerous. If you preach that, you probably should have your resume in hand. But there's no political downside to preaching at men. So hammer them hard and then go enjoy the potluck. That's what generally happens. We will endeavor this morning to do neither of those things. What we will endeavor this morning to do is to explicate the passage as it is and then draw some conclusion from that explication, focusing on all of it and focusing on it as it is. For the wives. You find two commands in verse 1 through 6. The main command is verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. And then there is a second command, although it is a subordinate command, if you look at it in the text, that is in verse 3. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel, rather let it be the hidden person of the heart. Let it be something other than that. If you are holding a uh, hard copy of a Bible, the odds are, if you're, especially if you're looking at the King James or New King James, you will see that the word merely in verse 3 has been supplied. It's in italics. It means that the translators put it in to give some meaning, but you don't find the word merely in the original text, and that is correct. Uh, You can take that word out, and it reads perfectly fine. Do not let your adornment be outward, arranging of the hair, wearing gold, and putting on fine apparel. Um, Don't let that be your beauty. It doesn't say strictly you can't, braid your hair, or wear outer adornment. But it does say, it commands, the beauty that you possess, when people talk about you, and when they notice you, is not, wow, that girl is cute, wow, that woman is truly statuesque, but rather when they think about you, they will see a beauty. It it seems to include that you probably want to be seen as beautiful. There are some people who don't, but generally most women do. And when they think of you and they think about your beauty, they will think about an inner you, inner qualities that you possess. They will say things like, that girl is amazing. What a quiet spirit she has. That woman is truly known for her inner qualities of wisdom. She's beautiful. Now, on the surface, these two commands would not seem all that connected. Submit to your husbands. Uh, Some of them aren't obeying the word. Submit to them anyway. And, oh, by the way, uh, you should have an inner beauty. Um, how are these things connected? Well, we need to look at what Peter says 
this kind of biblical submission is. And before we do that, we need to hammer home again who's being talked about. The husband here, whom the wife is being asked to submit to, is not just the Christian husband that you find in Ephesians 5. He is an unbeliever. And he is an unbeliever, at least in action, because he does not submit to the Word of God. So, wives, submit to your husbands who are living contrary to the Word of God. What kind of person lives contrary to the Word of God? How would you describe them? Does the concept of he's a good guy come up? Does the idea that he's fair or just enter your mind when you hear, okay, this man walks contrary to the Word of God? He is functionally an unbeliever, if not actually an unbeliever. Wives, submit to your husbands. What is this submission? In the Phillips New Testament, J.B. Phillips paraphrases the concept of submission almost every time by saying it means wives adapt yourselves to your husbands. That is, in most places, actually a fairly uh, helpful paraphrase, but in this particular place it is not. Because you could get the idea that wives, you should adapt yourselves to your husbands. They are being jerks and they are disobeying the word. So you adapt yourself to that and you go along the program. That is not what Peter would have you do. It's not what Jamie Phillips would have you do. When we come to the word submission in this context, we need to focus more on where it fits in what we could call the social political order. We have already looked at, in the past, the fact that the Bible is ruthlessly patriarchal. Any feminist will tell you that. They'd be glad to shout at you and tell you that. And then they would tell you that patriarchy is bad. Patriarchy is evil. Uh, Why would you want to be in a patriarchal system? You have to submit to people. Uh, You do, in a patriarchal system. You have a ordered level of authorities, and you are somewhere in the order, and you are called to submit if you are not the top of the order, and it's guaranteed that you're not, because the top of the patriarchal order in the scriptures is the one father from which all of their fathers come, that is God himself, so there is not a person in this room that will ever become the top of that order. When I was a scoffer in high school, uh, several of my friends actually ran a political campaign and they asked all the people in school to vote for me for God. Uh, It was funny at the time, but God will never have that election. Uh, Nobody will run for the office, so there's no possibility I could win that. And neither will you. So the the highest person is God. And then you have this gradation of fathers. They are authorities. They are under God. You are under these fathers. Patriarchy says the highest father wins. So if you are called to submission to a patriarchal order, and a father above you says, I want you to commit sin. I am sinning, and I want you to join with me in committing this sin. Uh, I'm your authority. The Bible says it. So you should submit and do that. In a patriarchal system, especially the one that we are in, is that a legitimate command by a father? I want you to sin. I'm your husband, you're the wife, I'm the head of the house, right? So you join me in sin. Is that legitimate? The answer is no, because this is a gradiated system. The highest father has said certain commands, 
If the general gives a command, the second lieutenant may think he's over the general, but he is not. In a patriarchal system, you obey the highest father, so there's actually a huge amount of protection there. In the Christian understanding of what a Christian society and family should be, highest father is the trump card, and it makes no sense. It is nonsensical to ask the question, if somebody tells me to sin, should I do that? The answer is no, because sin, by its definition, is disobeying the highest father, so it makes no sense. You are protected in that regard. But you are nevertheless called to fit into that social order that God has established. And the truth is, the Bible does teach that man is the head of his household, that he is the father of his household, and you are to submit to him, and you are to do so even if he is not obeying the word. That doesn't mean you help him not obey the word. But you nevertheless do submit to him in the order anyway. There is, however, another question similar to the question, if I'm told to sin, should I do that, that we also at this point ought to deal with, and that is if I'm in submission to somebody and they tell me to do something that I don't like, and I think it's dumb, and I think that I could do it better, and I don't know why he won't listen to me, should I submit to him? Is that the same question? Or is it different? Because oftentimes it is treated as the same question. I'm called to submit to you, my husband, but quite frankly, you're an idiot. And so therefore, on those things that you are an idiot, I'm not going to submit to you because, you know, hire me. It's a totally different question. If you don't like something, but your authority tells you to do it, this is literally when submission comes into play. It is not really submission if somebody tells you to do something and you go, that's a smart idea, I want to do that. You're just kind of going with the flow. Submission is when I don't want to do that, I don't like that, but I've been told to do this, I therefore must submit. Submission is in this light. Wives, submit to your husbands. It is particularly if you don't like the idea that it comes into play. And these are, according to the text, the elements of what true submission is. The first one is obedience. Peter hammers this home very clearly he says the model of female submission is Sarah. And when Sarah spoke to Abraham, her husband, Abraham called him her Lord. And Peter says, effectively, go and do likewise. You don't call somebody Lord and then tell them no. As Americans, we don't have the proper understanding of authority we ought to. But when you call Jesus Christ King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you are literally making him impossible to say no to because you don't say no to the King. You don't say no to the Lord. And here, Sarah calls her husband Lord, and Peter says you should be like her. So obedience is very definitely a part of this. And so is being beautiful, our subordinate command. Verse 5 reads, <clears throat> after talking to us about an internal beauty, For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. So in verse 5, Peter locks them together absolutely. You are called to be submissive. You are called to be beautiful to your husband. That is part of submission. Solomon tells us that outer beauty is vain and charm is deceitful. Obviously he is right because the Holy Spirit is inspiring that. But nevertheless, men do crave true beauty. 
It is the desire of a husband that his wife be beautiful for him. And Peter locks it up into the concept of submission and says this is part of it. Be obedient, be beautiful, not the beauty of outer adornment, but rather an imperishable beauty. Y'all ever gone back and looked at the girls from your high school? How things kind of stand up there? I go back and think about the girls from my high school. Uh, outwardly, many of them were beautiful. Now, also, I had hormones raging, so probably saw them in an even better light than they were, but they were very beautiful to the eye. Has their beauty maintained? Well, some of them yes, but not to the level they were. Beauty, outer beauty, perishes. And that is what Peter is talking about. Uh, y'all going to get old. And you're not going to look as good at 60 as you did at 20. It isn't going to happen. If you want evidence for that, go look at Madonna. Because... She's trying to make her physical beauty imperishable, and it ain't happening. She is spending all the money she can to be beautiful, like she was in 20, and it's not taking place. There is nothing she can do to make this imperishable. Physical beauty will fade, it will go away, but the inner beauty that God wants you to be known for won't. It is qualities of the heart. It is inner qualities. Peter says they are naked. You can't see them with the human eye. But you can. This is one of those things where you don't see it, but you do. Otherwise, your husband can be attracted to it. What he sees is the outer working of it. And Peter says these inner qualities are this. They are a quiet spirit. The spirit is your inner man. It's uh, the, the person you are on the inside. Are you known for being quiet? Now, not silent, it's a different word. But when people think about you, women, when they think about your true beauty, do they look at you and say, there goes a woman who truly is not loud and bombastic? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about uh, a gentle, demure, kind type of spirit. That's eternally beautiful, especially to God. Peter says, um, you know, people may have different qualities that they think of as beautiful, but we're talking about what God thinks, and God thinks a quiet spirit is beautiful. He thinks a gentle spirit is beautiful. When people think of you, do they say, that is someone who is nurturing. That is someone who is kind. That is someone who, who really is life-giving. You've heard, the, you've heard the proverb that there is every human being brightens up a room. You've heard this, right? Every human being brightens up a room. Some of them brighten up the room when they enter it, and some of them brighten up the room when they leave it. Which one are you? Peter says, true beauty is this gentle, nurturing, people want to be around you because you are healing to them kind of person. It's in the heart. It is in the inner person. It is something that is imperishable. Why is it imperishable? Well, it's because it's a spiritual quality that God works. And what God works by sanctification doesn't go away. This kind of beauty will be forever. It will go with you to the grave. It will go with you to redemption. It will be with you forever. It is part of submission to have this beauty. And it's built on faith in God. 
Did you notice, Peter said, now these are holy women of former time, they had faith in God, they put their trust in God, and therefore they manifested this kind of beauty, and therefore they were submissive. What is the main reason that women aren't submissive? The main reason they will tell you is, I don't trust my husband. I would submit to him, but honestly, I just can't, I can't guarantee he's going to do what is right, which means what I want him to. So I'm not going to submit to him. Underneath that, though, really is, I don't trust God. There is a God, and I am called to serve God, and part of that serving is I'm called to serve my husband, because he's put me in my husband, and I just don't really trust God to work things out for me. I don't have that kind of faith in God. So, as Peter defines submission, it is obedience and beauty, quiet spirit, gentle spirit, it's in the heart, it comes from faith in God. This kind of woman is a true treasure. You may not want to be this woman, you may be mad listening to this sermon, and i got to admit, this is an amazing morning, because Sunday school was on God can and does use human sin for his own glory. I'm now preaching on women submit to your husbands. And after this, we're having a congregational meeting talking about my package, so I'm going to make all of you mad. <laughs> but, if you knew these women, you would want to be around them. Quiet, gentle, beautiful, life-giving, nurturing, kind, You tell me you don't want to be around that kind of person. You know you do. Even if you don't want to be it. Wives, submit. Live a life glorifying to Christ. Live a life worthy. Wives, submit. Likewise, husbands. There's not as much text here. But that's probably because men are really not as complex in some ways. You've seen those memes where the woman is wondering what a man's thinking and the answer is not thinking anything. Well, there's some real truth to that. Uh, Likewise, husbands, there is one command. But the command does have multiple parts. The first one is Dwell with your wife. Dwell with her. What comes to mind when you hear the word dwell? Is it a brief thing? Is it a momentary thing? Or if you are dwelling, are you doing something at length? We dwell in our homes... We go there for many, many hours of the day. We live there uh, seven days a week. We're there all year, effectively. Husbands, you are to dwell with your wives. You're not to dwell with your work. You're not to dwell with your own interests. But you are to dwell with your wives. You are to Place yourself with her and live there with her. You've heard the old joke that, you know, my wife started a strange conversation yesterday with, are you even listening to me? There is a, uh, you must invest here. You must dwell with your wife and you must do so in understanding. The Spirit of God is speaking to both men and women, and he is speaking to them where they need to hear. And husband, you are to be understanding to your wife. What does that mean? Well, at a base level, it means we probably have a problem with whatever this understanding is. And understanding means consider things from her perspective, understand how she is thinking, 
understand what's going on internally. Now, to be understanding does not equate to always be accepting. Again, I, I can hear a wife saying to her husband, Pastor Russ said, Peter told me that you need to understand me, so you shut up and obey so that I can submit to you. We, we need to avoid that trap. But husband, consider the inner life of your wife, how she is thinking about things. In other passages, she has called your help me. There has been some lying false teachers in the last couple of months trying to twist that word, and if you go looking for it on the internet, you can find some false teachers who will tell you something very different than what I'm about to tell you, but what the word help me has meant from its origin to this very moment, it's a loan word from Persian, it is Hebrew, but it means the royal advisor. In the Persian court, if you were the royal advisor, you didn't really have a bad job. You had the ear of the king, you sat in the court, you advised the king. The king did not obey you. The king ultimately did what the king wanted to do, but the king listened to you, and in all those proverbs that Solomon tells us about with many counselors, advisors, there's victory, this is kind of the context those proverbs were set in. If you want to succeed at life, you need many counselors, says Solomon. And here, Peter says, husbands, understand your wives. They are, in fact, your advisors, so it makes perfect sense. Give her honor. Years ago, I was on my way to my pastorate, and I had stopped at the Denny's that was in Mount Vernon at the time. Most of y'all youngins don't remember that there was one, but there was. And while we were standing in line, there was a husband and wife that were obviously fighting for all of us to watch. And the man finally looked at her, and he had not been a nice guy up to this point. He looked at her and said, God made me the head of the household. You just shut up and you tell me you do what I tell you to do, you just shut the blank blank up because God says it. That's not honoring your wife. And that's not how God gives authority. We've already talked about this, but it's extremely important that you realize in the Christian understanding of things, God doesn't give you authority to do what you want to do. God doesn't make you a mother so that you can do anything you want to do to your children. God doesn't make you a husband so that you can do anything you want to do to your wife. God doesn't make me an elder so that I can do anything I darn well want to in the church. God gives authority so that we might better obey Him. And if we don't use our authority in that way, we are misusing our authority, and it's a sin. And here, Peter tells husbands, if you don't honor your wife, again, this doesn't say obey her, but if you don't honor her, if you don't treat her with respect and kindness, you've been given authority, but the Lord Christ is going to ask you how you used it. And he's going to ask you, not just kind of an overall way, He's going to ask, how did you use my authority at 535 on Thursday in 1993? He's real specific, and he keeps good notes. And he says, husbands, honor your wives. They are equal with you in the covenant of life. God has given them grace in the covenant. God values them exactly like he values you. The fact that he has given you authority doesn't mean he likes you more, which at certain points in history, that's kind of been what Christians thought. Um, you want to get it really bad, there are a number of Muslim enclaves 
where it's standard understanding among the Muslims that you women don't even really have the same kind of soul. Uh, you're a secondary soul. Or if you want to go really further, you can become a Jane, and it turns out you women don't even really exist as people. That's not the biblical presentation. You are equal to your husband in the covenant of life. God honors you equally. He values you equally. And uh, your husband should, in fact, honor that because that's what God does. After all, in this flow of thought, we have moved through, you should be like Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? He is God embodied. He is the God you can see with your eyes, who does stuff in the world. You want to ask what God would do? Well, he did it. He lived a life, and there's God. So, uh, honor your wife. But now we looked at why it would be hard for wives to submit to their husbands, especially those that don't obey the word. What makes it hard for the husband Because quite frankly, an ethics of command is just like I described submission, really. When God says there are ten things I command you to do, what does he want you to do to those commandments? He wants you to submit, right? God commands, you're supposed to submit, obey. Well, if submission only happens when it's, you don't want to, that's Effectively, true in the Ten Commandments, too. It's no big deal to obey God if you really wanted to do it. So what makes obeying here for the husband hard? Well, Peter introduces that what makes it hard is remember that your wife is the weaker vessel. What does that mean? Well, it does mean weaker physically. Women are more delicate. Uh, Why are women getting broken in body? Because men who claim they're women are trouncing them at sports right now. It's because those men are men, and quite frankly, men win physically. Now, there are... I've seen women who don't really fit that. One of the police officers I served with when I was working with police was named Carol. And Carol wasn't any bigger than Carmen, but I did watch her throw a hulking six-foot-two guy across a lobby and over an RA desk. So there are some women who don't actually fit the, the pattern here. But overall, generally, physically, women are weaker. They are the weaker vessel. They are also the weaker vessel in some other ways. It has been pointed out, and women get very mad and then they don't talk to you about this for two days, but it has been pointed out that women, by the fact they are women, tend to be more emotional. Turns out it's true. Uh, Women tend to make decisions based on emotion. Again, there are women I know who don't meet that stereotype. And I'm looking at a few of them. If you think I'm meaning you, well, I I am. But overall, across the board, women tend to think with their emotions, and that is just not good policy for living your life. Men are more tending to the rational. Men are more tending to the logical. You may not like it, but it's true. And that is weaker in its way. Now again, you've been called to be the advisor to the king. The king needs to hear the emotional world. But if we make you king and you get mad, uh, you make good decisions when you're mad? You don't. The wife is the weaker vessel in a number of ways. The husband endures that sometimes. Tell me that's not true. Tell me, women, that you look in the mirror and you see someone 
who occasionally you admit you're a little sorry for your husband having. That ever happen? It's part of the human condition. And so, uh, husbands, respect your wives. Husbands, listen to your wives. Consider how they're thinking. Um, this is sometimes hard for the husband. And sometimes it is legitimately hard. But likewise, you husbands. This is the command of Christ. This is a life worthy of your calling. This is a life that emulates Christ. And there are benefits and there are consequences. The benefits can be seen in the flow of thought. Beloved, I urge you to live a life honorable among the Gentiles so that when the Gentiles see the kind of life you're living, they will ultimately end up glorifying your Father in heaven like you are. Peter is specifically referring to evangelism. The benefit of this is if you live Christ-like, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about living Christ-like according to your gender. There will be evangelistic effects. Now, you may be thinking, doesn't the world hate what I'm saying? I mean, honestly, you could be taking a video, put me on YouTube, and I could get thousands of people hating me in an hour. Don't they hate what I'm saying? Well, the answer is yes and no. They hate it on paper, but they would crawl across Chicago over a field of broken glass to actually have it. Now we're talking about actual Christian marriage, a Christian home, a home where these things actually happen, where the wife submits, the husband cares and honors. Um, it'd be an awful hard person who says, no, I don't want to live in that. If your marriage reflects Christ, God is going to use it. And if you reflect Christ, women, God may use you as his chosen vessel to win your husband, even though he is not obedient to the word. That's the exact context of our discussion. I've had a lot of women look me in the eye and really say, I'm not going to do that. You don't understand he's an unbeliever. You don't understand he's not being obedient. So I'm not going to be quiet and gentle with him. I'm going to stop my feet and slap the beer out of his hand and knock him down into his easy chair and slap him around a little bit and just scream at him and say, why don't you come to church with me? Um, no joke. I mean, it's kind of a scene that. Um, your husband will be one if he sees something in you that he can't explain. Goodness, a quiet spirit, a kind spirit, uh, a gentle spirit, a, a quality of heart that is obviously supernatural. Uh, if you want to win a rebellious husband, be submissive. Now again, don't join him in his sins, don't empower him in his sins, no, don't go with him to the strip club, don't watch porn with him. You know, none of that is legitimate. But he will be won, perhaps, says Peter, by the spiritual sanctification that you have received. The consequence is the mirror image of that. The world will not be won by a Christian church that doesn't live like this. The world will look at our families, our relationships, the way we live our lives, and they will ask, why should I consider your Christ? He doesn't make any difference in your life. And you can say, well, that's not fair. I'm saved by grace. It's not my works. And you will be right. And you will also be obstinate because, quite frankly, the world is going to examine you and say, is there anything to your Christ? And they will figure it out by whether you're a changed person or not. There is also one more consequence, 
And this is to husbands, not to wives. Husbands, do you feel like God isn't listening to you? Do you feel like when you pray, God has shut you out and he is not talking to you? He doesn't want to hear from you. It is as if your prayers are not reaching heaven. Peter here says, Husbands, honor your wives, care for them, treat her as the weaker vessel in protecting her. Otherwise, God won't hear your prayers. There's no exegeting that to it doesn't mean what it sounds like. Three times in the book of Jeremiah, we are told between chapter 9 and chapter 11, I, the Lord, have come to the place where I don't want you to pray for Israel, my people. I'm not going to listen. I have, we, we've, we've passed the point of no return. I'm bringing the Babylonians. You can pray night and day if you want to, but I won't listen to you. Imagine if God said that to you. I won't listen anymore. In the New Testament, it comes up here. Husbands, do you feel alienated from God? Do you feel like your prayer life is accomplishing nothing? How are you treating your wives? Because God will get mad, and he'll shut your prayers out. That is an awesome consequence. And it happens. Believe me, it happens. I do marriage counseling. When, when things are going south, you know, it's, usually it takes two to dance, sure. But the husband comes to me and says, I can't sense God. I feel like God has abandoned me. Where is God? I thought I had faith in God, but I'm not even sure I have faith in God anymore. I don't feel God. Well, you're sitting here for marriage counseling. And I don't counsel families that are not in crisis. Because they don't need it. God says, I won't hear your prayer. And it's as simple as that. But the focus is Christ-likeness. Submission is not given in the context of political power. It's not given uh, in the context of an endurance session, really. It's given in the context of being Christ-like. Christ submitted to his Father. He submitted on the night he was betrayed. He submitted to being treated unjustly, that we might be redeemed. Likewise, wives. Likewise, husbands. This is the meaning of the word of the Lord. Amen.